Carly is my daughter, and growing up, I never expected to be an alcoholic and a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, let alone be one that's introducing their daughter to lead a meeting. But I am so proud to say that Carly is sober for quite a while. She inspires me on a daily basis. Um, She has a podcast that I, I listen to all the time on the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and she is what you would call a student of the book. Mm. And I learn from her so much. And she's so talented in so many ways. And with nothing further, I will give you Carly Israel from Practical Experience. Yes, 7 p.m. big book. Yes. Thank you, Mama. I'm Carly Recovered Alcoholic. Um, can we say the serenity prayer? God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Okay, I'm going to interject. I wanna, I'm going to uh, mute everybody now. So if you want to speak, please unmute yourself. Thank you. Okay. Um, so Carly recovered alcoholic. My sobriety date is January 27th, 1999. My home group is on Thursday nights. It's a zoom meeting now, 7 PM big book and all are welcome. Um, I want to thank my mom for asking me to lead. Um, it's not even weird anymore. It's, it's been so long that it's not even weird anymore. I'm honored and we've done so much work through these years in the program that our relationship is really awesome and we work really hard at it. It doesn't just happen. Um, but I'm really grateful for that. And I want to just recognize my parents, um, their sobriety date is going to be next Thursday. God willing, they don't do anything stupid from now until then. And they will have 28 years, I think. Um, and I got a I know this time of the year. I remember this time of the year before they got sober. And I know for certain that if my parents weren't the example that they were and didn't hold the door open for me to meet you guys, I would not be where I am today. Um, The Northeast group is one of my favorite groups. I got sober in Cleveland and I used to go to the Northeast group because that was the Friday night dress up meeting where if you were young and sober and you wanted to have any sort of life you got cute and went out and then had dinner and hung out with friends because I got sober when I was almost 20 and that was like our social life um but I remember the gauntlet of greeters and the gratitude I would feel for the old timers who stayed and there's some of them on here today and there's some of them that have passed and I was talking with someone in a from Cleveland Heights um about those old timers and I'm just so grateful for that concept that I stand on the shoulders of giants, that the people who were here when I got here, um, there's too many to name, but my really, really good friend, Frank Harnerker died sober this year. And if 2020 wasn't challenging enough, that was a really big blow. And it was a reminder to me that I need to spend more time telling people that mean something to me, that they mean something to me. So I'm just going to get right into it. <laughs> um, I'm a big book lover. If you don't like the big book, you could probably find another meeting tonight because I'm going to be talking a lot about it. Um, I try not to use it as a weapon, but as a tool. It is the only thing I found in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous that have helped me. 
I was in AA for a while doing nothing other than going to meetings and I didn't get better. I got worse. So there's a part in a vision for you that I always like to read for myself to remind myself of my purpose when I'm leading. And it says, many a man yet days from his hospital experience has stepped over the threshold of that home into freedom. Many an alcoholic who entered there came away with an answer. And the reason why I like to read that is it's my responsibility, since I'm the one who was asked to lead tonight, to make sure that whoever is listening walks away with an answer of what Alcoholics Anonymous offers. And what I know to be the answer is that for me, the only way out of the mental obsession and the pain and the misery and insanity of what it's like to not drink on your own and to try to do this on your own has been the 12 steps and the members of Alcoholics Anonymous that have taken me through them. Um, I introduced myself as a recovered alcoholic because I am. The reason why I do that is a couple of things. Number one, it is all throughout our big book. They talk about it over and over and over again. It's literally the first the first page where it says Alcoholics Anonymous, the story of how many thousands of men and women have recovered from alcoholism. And they go on and on and on to point out that we will, we're co- recovering from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. And the reason why I like to tell people that is I want the person that's sick or suffering in the rooms to know that there is a way out and you can become recovered. Um, what that means clearly is I can never put alcohol in my body ever again because I'm allergic to it. And if I, if I put alcohol in my body, it will activate the physical allergy. But because of the 12 steps, I do not have a body anymore that physically craves alcohol. And I no longer have a mind that tells me the lie that I need it. So I'm recovered um, contingent on the work I do every day. Um, where do I begin? So my parents got sober when I was 13. I was 9 when I got drunk for the first time. 12 when I started using on my own. It's crazy because I have three kids and... My youngest is 11, and my oldest is 14, and my oldest, I mean, I can't even fathom, but I, I, I was there. I was stealing things from Heights Pharmacy. I was drinking anything I could find, and what I discovered when I put alcohol in my body was that I love the effect it produced, and if you're here tonight and you were worried that you're going to hear someone that's going to talk about how horrible alcohol was, that is not my experience. Alcohol was my solution, and it was not my problem. My solution to being uncomfortable, my solution to having a hard time, my solution to any feeling, and and towards the end, that solution just became I didn't want to have any feeling. And so I don't like to spend a long time on my drunkalogue. I can tell you that growing up in an alcoholic home, I learned a few things that are really important to survive. And one of them was that you can't tell anyone about what's really going on. So I learned that I needed to get good grades and behave well so no one could say to me, like, you're a mess because I didn't, I wanted to protect my drinking. And so if somebody would say to me, you know, you're in trouble, I would say, where, where am I in trouble? Is it my grades that I'm getting perfect grades? Is it all the activities I'm doing? What is it that I'm, I'm having a hard time with? And I learned that if I keep those outsides looking good, it, no one could bother me about what was really going on. And that ended up becoming, um, one of the things that almost killed me. So my parents got sober. They were heavily active in AA. They went to a meeting almost every night, if not every night. And um, I was introduced to Thursday Night Adult. And I still, when I drive by, I live in the Heights. And when I drive by that church, I think about it. Because, you know, I remember hearing in the rooms, watch while your beginnings. Because they manage themselves. And, 
you know, those people in those rooms, they were the family that ended up becoming my family. And my parents came back to us and they showed up at events and I knew that that AA was good and I wanted nothing to do with it. Um, my parents told me that I probably had a really strong chance of ending up in the rooms or being an alcoholic. And I told them that was never going to happen. And my solution was not to not drink. It was just, I was never going to end up in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I'll just fast forward to my end because it was, it got really, it got really dark, really, really fast. And what I found in the book and from other people that have had this experience is that some, for some of us, depending on what we're putting in our body, depending on our makeup, depending on a lot of different things, um, we hit bottom really hard and really fast. And it wasn't as if I hit like a super high bottom and I was lucky. It was that I almost died. Um, I got, I went to Ohio university and I kept my outsides looking good. And at the, at my end, I ended up, um, seeking out psychiatric help because I didn't want my problem to be that, um, I was an alcoholic. I wanted my problem to be that I needed a, a medication that was going to fix me because I didn't want to quit what I was doing. And um, long story short, I ended up putting 90 pills in my mouth and laying on a bathroom floor in Athens, Ohio, waiting to die. And that was six days sober. Um, I had sought out psychiatric help. I was on many different medications. I finally ended up in an AA meeting and I was told not to drink and go to meetings and to come back the next day. And I didn't think I was an alcoholic, but they told me to keep coming back. I did not drink. I went to meetings for five nights. And I know it sounds silly to say it out loud, but we never know who the person that we're giving that information to, how how long the fuse is on their bomb and how, how much time they have left before they are going to leave or before they're going to do something stupid. And my fuse was very, very short. And by six days sober... I was so emotionally and mentally uncomfortable, and if this was sobriety, if this is what AA was, I was out, peace out, and I ran in the bathroom and I swallowed 90 pills, completely sober, no alcohol in my body, and um, I ended up in an ambulance, and I went to Oblenda's hospital, and they put a tube down my throat and my stomach, and I drank two bottles of charcoal, and they told me I lost all my rights as a human being to make any more decisions, and I made them call my parents at five in the morning or four forty-five in the morning. And they took me to the ICU and they wouldn't let me leave. And I finally, um, you know, life is pretty cool the way that if you can stay sober and you keep doing the work, you get to find out more information. And what I found out about that night that I never knew until this year was two things. So I recently wrote my memoir, which was a dream I've had my whole entire life and it was pretty awesome and a massive honor and I'm really really grateful for the opportunity and when I wrote it it became the story of not just my story but of my ancestors and my family story and and gratitude and mess and I learned that if I reached out to different places like police stations or, or fire stations to find different records I could piece together parts of our stories and I reached out I went, I was staying in Hocking Hills with my husband and, which is like a half an hour away from Athens. And I had not been back to OU in 20 years. Um, and it was the weekend before my book came out. And I reached out to Athens police department just on a whim because I had called the Blenheim hospital 10 years earlier to see if my records were there. And they said they throw out all their records because I wanted to have an understanding of what it was like that night from a different place, from a different perspective. 
and I got lucky and the police person said, actually, I have it right here and sent me an email and it said suicide on the top of the police report. Um, with just very factual information and there was the name of a police officer and I wrote back to the woman that gave me the information I said is there any way I can get in touch with this police officer and she got she got us connected and he is serving active military and I have a very massive heart for anyone that's in the military and we got to communicate back and forth via email and we sent him a copy of my book and I told him that I I thanked him and I sent him a picture of my three children and I said, if you wouldn't have done your job that night, I don't know if these humans would even be here. And what I found out on that police report was that they sent the crisis team to my bedside. And I remember, I remember vaguely remember that there was this woman that sat on my bed with curly hair and she said to me in the ICU, you don't have to live like this anymore. And I remember thinking, who is the, what's happening? Like what, what is happening right now? And I totally dismissed her and I signed myself out against medical advice and I went on my merry way. But the reason why I bring it up tonight is all the different people that play a part in our like tornadoes and disasters and how they all deserve like a thank you. And they all deserve like, uh, you know, just so you know, this is how it turned out. And, you know, we try to do that for each other today. And I, I just never know like what, how we're going to affect other people. So that was just really special for me. Um, on that walk home, I reached what I believe and what I've learned in the other places I've been sober was the gift of desperation. And I was given the gift to be just tired and desperate enough that I didn't have anywhere else to go. And I went back to my apartment and walked in the snow a mile and a half away. And I called the woman that I'd reached out to before I got sober. And she told me to get back to meetings. And I never stopped going since. And my sobriety, um, you know, my story doesn't end there. I was 19 years old, almost 20. And I got into AA and I I was the exact same person. I just wasn't having anything in my body. And um, I was the person, and I can tell you so clearly because I birthed myself as my karma baby, my third child. And I see it so clearly and it's, I'm terrified of like what he's going to be like. But um, (laughs) he does so much work to not do work. And I did that. I did so much work to not do work. I was the, the kid in high school who would spend four hours creating a cheat sheet that I could slide into my big pen instead of just studying. And I was like that in AA. And I got in AA and I said, I saw the people that were doing the work and I saw the people that weren't. And of course I went to the people that weren't because why would I want to do the work? And what I got when I didn't do the work in the rooms of AA and I just drank and just didn't drink and went to meetings was I wanted to kill myself more than I'd ever wanted to kill myself in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And this is not to bash anybody. Um, Everyone has their story and their way that they get here. But when I got sober, the things that I heard in the rooms of AA were, um, you didn't get sick overnight, you're not going to get well overnight. Um, If you're not ready to do the steps, let the steps rise to meet you. Don't rush, first step, first year. And 90 meetings in 90 days, and we're going to love you till you can love yourself and keep coming back, it gets better. That's literally all I heard. And again, well-meaning information that almost killed me. And the reason why it almost killed me is because I am a real alcoholic, and I'm channeling Ruth Arnoff Seltzer and all of her other last names, and I'm channeling her because she would talk about that. And the real alcoholic that she talks about is from the big book, and I'm that real alcoholic because... Given a sufficient reason, I can't stop or moderate. And given the reason of just being an AA and, and just being part of this awesome club and, and, you know, 
having a sobriety date that wasn't enough for me because in the rooms of AA, I was miserable and suicidal and broken and blocked off from God. And it wasn't until I was taken through the steps by a woman who is no longer sober, who saved my life, that I was able to find a way. Um, and I'm just going to take you briefly through that. So when I w- work with women, I like to talk to them about visual stuff because I'm a visual person. And I picture um, sitting in a building in a burning room and the room's clearly on fire and there's smoke and I can hear the ambulances and fire trucks and police and I know they're out there. That's God. That's like help. But they can't get to me and I can't get out to them because there's a long skinny hallway separating the room I've locked myself in and the exit for them to get to me. And the reason why I'm sitting in that room is I put myself there. There's nobody that put me there. And I put myself there. And so step one, I tell the women I'm working with is admitting that in this room, I'm going to die. That with the understanding that I physically can't drink alcohol and that I've got a body that wants it, that can't stop drinking and a mind that tells it it needs to. That's step one. And step two is just saying that there's another way to get out. That if I break open the door that I've locked and I try to pull out all the stuff in the hallway, that the fire people can get to me and I can get out and I can breathe and I can get connected. And step one and step two are ideas that I was told only happen by sitting on the couch and there's no action involved. It's just an understanding. But with those two steps, I'm going to die an alcoholic death if I don't do anything. And so when I work with women, we take them to the first three steps and we tell them that this idea and step three is just a decision. Do I want to get out of hell, basically? Am I ready to change? Are you done? And, um, you know, Frank Harnacker always said that step three is just a decision to do the rest of the work. And so back to that burning room, I tell the women I'm working with that that step three decision that we just did that was beautiful. And we just got on our knees and did that prayer that if you don't go home right now, after we give these instructions to start your four step, even for 15 or 20 minutes, that you're going to be basically sitting back on that couch and going to die in that room because the decision is just a decision if I don't follow it through with action. And then four through nine is the clearing of that hallway. Yeah, I pull it out with a sponsor that knows me, that knows how to do it, me, sponsor, and God. And that sponsor helps me identify the boxes of all the crap I pulled out. And we write labels on it so I know who to make amends to and who to give something back to and what to throw out and what to recycle. And the goal for me is that I finally create a beautiful, clear, clean hallway between myself and my higher power. And that in that hallway, there's space, and I picture myself free and breathing and connected and in that hallway I can hear that voice from my inner soul my God and I'm directed and I know what to do and that is the goal so four through nine is clearing out the hallway and then 10 and 11 is how I keep it clear and keep it connected today so um I was told I'm not supposed to wait until I finish my nine step amends to do my 10th step I did not know how to do a 10 step until I was 13 years sober I was at Northeast chairing the meeting and Kevin Mooney led the meeting for us. Oops, my light went out. Um, and oops, I think I have to turn on the car. Hold on. I'm going to chat while we're doing this. So yeah, there you go. Um, it's my first ever car lead. Um, so he led the meeting and he talked about the 10 step and I, I felt like the top of my head just blew off because I'd never, ever realized that I wasn't doing 10 steps. I was doing a yearly fourth step because my stuff got blocked off because I wasn't doing the work on a daily basis to clear it up. Um, and I thought the 10 step was just like, if you mess up, you should like apologize. And that's not what the 10 step is. So I'll share with you what it is right now. Okay. 
here's a little example. The 10 step I always say is like a pocket knife step because it's like a tool you could take with you and carry with you wherever you go and you use it. For me, the 10 step is, oh, are we okay? You can't hear me? Okay, hold on one second. How about now? Yeah? Okay, sorry. Um, that's basically like my whole life. Can you hear me? Am I on the right link? Um, so, right. So the 10 step is a pocket knife step that I get to carry around with me whenever I don't know what to do. For me, when I got sober, the 10, instead of a 10 step, I would just smoke and I'd be like, I'm so uncomfortable. I need to get out of this feeling. And there's again, no judgment against people who are smoking. But for me, I used cigarettes instead of God. Today, I don't smoke because of many reasons. And I found out that if I don't do a 10 step, I get blocked off and I get afraid and I get anxious and I get resentful. And then I can't hear God and I don't care about you. And then the mental obsession returns. And then my next thought is, I can't, I hate meetings. I don't want to go to meetings. And like all those thoughts come back and all that yucky stuff comes back. So here's a 10 step. So the first part of the 10 step I take from four and five and I'll do one right now. So am I resentful? So resentful doesn't only mean angry. It could mean like rethinking and refeeling. Um, it's been a real week, lots of emotions, really, um, cranky on my side, cranky all around me. And it's been really overwhelming just being part of like the human race lately Am I afraid? Yes, because I feel like without getting political, we are in the middle of a really scary time. And um, I've talked to a lot of people about this and I've noticed it myself included that everyone's kind of like done with everything. Like we're done with COVID. We're done with all of it. We're just tired and cranky and it's getting to everybody. And I can feel it. The holidays are approaching and they're looking very differently. And it's a lot. So the fear I have is like, oh my goodness, there's going to be so many more months of this, like months and months. Am I being dishonest? Yes, because the dishonesty is I have zero power over that. Like no power over other people's behavior, no power over anything except for the selfishness, which is my power, which is when I'm cranky, I need to do my work so I don't have to be cranky to people. So that's the fourth step. The fifth step is I'm sharing it with somebody. I normally do it in a 10-step text I send or I talk to my sponsor, so I'm doing it with you. Six and seven is about closing my eyes and breathing, and I picture that hallway. I work really, really hard to keep clean, and I ask my higher power to take away the crankiness I feel, the crankiness that's coming at me, the fear, the masks, all the questions, everything's up in the air, and I just say, God, take it. I, I can't do this. And then the la- that last part of the 10 step is my eighth and ninth step. Do I owe an amends to anyone? Do I need to change any of my behavior? Because I do daily 10 steps multiple times a day when it comes up, I usually don't own amends unless I've been like badly behaved, which is like sometimes once a week, sometimes every other week. Um, and the other part of that amend is what can I change within myself? And um, Kevin taught me this tool called BEAP, B-E-A-P. It's not spelled correctly, but it it helps me remember it. And these are the four things I can change. I can change my breathing. That's B. I often don't breathe properly or enough to be calm. I can change my ease, my expectations. I can expect that it is only November and we are minimum four to five months of this. And I do not want to live the rest of these four to five months months plus cranky um because it's exhausting a is my attitude um 
I have complete control over how I'm going to behave from here on out. And so my attitude is going to be a get to. I get to change the way I'm behaving. And I talked about this last night at my home group. And I said that I had been cranky. And I realized that our responsibility as recovered alcoholics is to be the light in other people's worlds and to really make an effort. And I'm trying to do that. Uh, My perspective is... My son's best friend who lives three doors away just finished his last of his first rounds of chemo and he's 13 and he's about to go get a crazy radiation trial thing and he's got a really crappy diagnosis and my diagnosis is contingent upon me going to meetings and helping other people and doing some inventory work and praying and meditating and I get to stay alive and and that's not what he gets the option to do. And then the others is I think of someone I can help, which is the rest of you guys. Um, I would like to share with you on my hand is you can't see it because it's all scribbled. But um, last night in my home group, we were reading, um, working with others. And at the bottom of the page, it talks about how at home we're supposed to try to do reparation to our family um, by living a spiritual life. And it says... That though his family may be in fault in many respects, he should not be concerned about that. He should concentrate on his own spiritual demonstration. Argument and fault finding are to be avoided like the plague. In many homes, this is a difficult thing to do, but it must be done if any results are to be expected. If persisted in for a few months, the effect on a man's family is sure to be great. I'm someone who, in order to keep my spiritual life strong and progressing, I like to take on challenges. And I find them to literally be transform- transformative. And last night I took on the challenge that the book says that if I if I persist for a few months, which is 60 days, um, about not arguing and fault finding, that the results are going to be more than I expect and the effect's going to be great. And so um, on my hand I have written no argue, no fault finding, and I'm on day one and I have not done it one time. Um, it's going to be hard. I'm not going to lie. Um, I basically said I should not talk to my husband or my youngest son if I don't want to argue. And fault finding, I ba- I just need to like shut up all the time. And the only way I can experience those feelings is in a 10-step with my sponsor with the solution as the goal. But I like to do this kind of stuff because I want the effect on my family to be great. I don't want to be someone who's walking around constantly finding fault and complaining and arguing. So um, if you're inspired by that at all, I welcome you to join us. And um, the last part is 10, 11, and 12. So I just shared with you 10. I start every single morning with the 11 step. I have like five alarms that wake me up because I really liked sleeping. And I wake up before I want to wake up. And it's usually dark in Cleveland and cold. And I hit my knees and I do a meditation. I usually listen to a guided meditation. And I read or listen to 86 through 88. And I want to share with you that... um, Kevin, who I was talking about, who who lost his daughter, Kaylee, to uh, physically lost her to a car accident, he called me from the morgue um, on the way home from that car accident. He called me when the accident happened. He called me from the morgue. And then he called me that morning at eight, like three hours after he left the morgue and said, I need you to help me with my 11 step this morning. And we both cried through it and we did it. And the reason why I'm sharing that is I do not have an excuse to not take the time to do my 11 step if he was able to do it on that morning. And I think about that because you guys taught me in AA that if I don't do the daily work I'm supposed to do now, that not if, when hard times come, I'm not going to be able to handle them because I'm not going to know how to do anything because I'm not going to be doing basic stuff. 
So my 11 step in the morning is my dedication, my time to God and me. And it's my responsibility to show up for that relationship. And full disclosure, I maybe feel connected and get something out of it one out of every 30 times. But it's about me saying to myself and God that I care about this relationship. Throughout the day, I try to talk to God when I remember that that's my option and my tool. And then at the end of the night, I do an inventory out of the the big book. Um, And then 12 is just like my whole life. I have a bunch of sponsees and I work with them and I have a sponsor who I work with. And there's never a time in my life where I don't get to practice the program because it's my life it's without it I have have nothing and I'm far from perfect and I struggle at work because I work for my brother and I have a hard time and I have lots of feelings and I have challenges because we're human um but my responsibility is to do the work and show up for other people and I just wanted to thank you guys for letting me share um I know that like I said it's really stressful right now but I have two options, like I've always been taught in in the rooms. I can be cranky and miserable and complain and talk about how everything sucks, or I can say how much I love COVID because I get to do virtual meetings and I get to be places that I can't be normally, and I get to connect with people that I never would connect with, and I found out that I actually love not leaving my house um, for many, many areas, and um, my responsibility is what Roe Eugene, who died sober, taught me is I need to find the gift and the lesson in everything I'm going through. And if I just look at how things are hard, I'm never going to enjoy it. But if I look at the beauty and the gifts, I'm going to find what I need. Um, so that's all I have. Do we do the Our Father now or do you just open it up for how does that work? Okay, let's do it. Let's Our Father it. <laughs>